Scott is a very good friend of mine. We both live in Massachusetts in the USA, and um, he's uh, on the board of Wisdom Way, which is the, the 501c3 for 10 Days of Prayer, and we have just been friends and um, partnering together in various ways um, for many, many years now, and our kids are around the same age. I see Marilda, his wife, is on here. Hi, Marilda. Good to see you. And um, so we, we love their family a lot. We're grateful to have them in our lives. And Sot, in particular, just has a lot of revelation, uh, kind of a heart message from the Lord around the Song of Songs. And um, I'm going to just turn it over to him for whatever God's put on his heart for today. Go ahead, brother. Great. Thanks, Jonathan. Um, hello, everyone. So for, uh, for tonight's study, um, my intention is I, I titled it Uniqueness of the Bride. And so I want to go over a couple of passages and talk about this bride identity, this, this bridal identity, and um, pull forth a little bit of a challenge for us to take this deeper and to consider it maybe in some ways that we haven't. Um, so far. And first of all, let me just mention, um, I did not grow up in a Christian family. And on the subject of the Song of Songs, um, I didn't, I wasn't born again with the Song of Songs in my hand. And uh, it's actually something that the Lord specifically gave me my own kind of dramatic encounter with him and called me to the book. And I would say reluctantly, wasn't really interested in it. And but I think just uh, sharing that up front on the front end kind of gives some perspective of, you know, this is, this is not something that was like a natural way for me to relate to the Bible. It wasn't a natural way for me to relate to just being a believer or understanding the Messiah. But I can tell you that after having meditated on this book consistently for about 20 years, it is by far it is, it is something that is, 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 I couldn't even overstate it. I couldn't say that the majesty and the, the wisdom that has been tucked in this book, leadership paradigms for the end time church, um, paradigms of what a new covenant believers experience should be and how the Lord shepherds his flock. Um, you know, I'll just say that after reluctantly coming to it, I just praise him and thank him repeatedly for drawing me to this book and calling me to this book. And so um, we'll start. I'm going to share my screen and go through this document. And um, hopefully I'll be able to get through it, you know, in about 15 or 20 minutes. And, um, you know, maybe then we'll have some uh, time if there's a couple of questions. Fantastic. So. The uniqueness of the bride, and we'll start. This is obviously this is a this is a very common passage. Um, I would think that most people, if not everybody on on um, on this call, are familiar with Revelation twenty two seventeen. Um, but I'd like to emphasize something in this passage. It's him who hears and whoever desires. Now twenty two seventeen Revelation twenty two seventeen it says, "In the spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come." Let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. 
And so in this passage, you know, this is like the, the final paradigm of prayer that's given to us in the word of God. It's, it's like the culmination of, of, of this age and, and the coming forth of, of the return of the Messiah and the transition into the next age. That reality, as far as the church is concerned, is the spirit in union with the church identified and experiencing her existence as a bride. And, and it's that place, that is the place where she cries out, come to the Lord Jesus. That is the place his heart is stirred and motivated to rise up and initiate the end time judgments and return to the earth. It's motivated by the cry of, of this identity that we call a bride, his his wife, his spouse, his espoused bride is the one that stirs him uh, to rise up and come. And so um, what we can garner, understand from this, if this is the paradigm that the book of Revelation, that the Holy Spirit says the church will be in, the identity of the church, we would expect it to be increasingly emphasized as the bride, as the return of Jesus approaches. And in this passage specifically, we see called out her unity with the spirit. And also we see her authority to call to the nations to the Messiah. This is the place where she's in union with the Holy Spirit. She is um, living under and, and provoking the Messiah to return. And she's been given the glory and authority to call to the nations to come to the, the fountains of, of the waters of life. And so, you know, when I've meditated on this passage and on the bridal identity, it's just like, you know, which uh, commonly uh, understood now, the gospel of the, the kingdom being preached to all nations, and then the end will come. There's a, there's a condition there for his return. Well, we can understand that a condition of his return is the, the, the church coming to a fullness of the experience of this reality that's described here coming to a fullness of the experience of what the bride is. And so it's not, a, you know, one thing, it's a, it's a true manifestation of the identity um, is the ultimate expression of the new creation or new, new covenant people. You know, when we're born again, we're born into a, a new creation, we're born into the new covenant. What we see in, see in the bride is the, the fullest and most truest expression of what that means for, for believers, for the church in that identity, in that place of union with the spirit, and then operating within the authority to call the nations to him because the Lord, the Holy One of Israel has glorified her to do that, okay? Um, another observation that we can see from this, this bridal identity, we see this from book of Revelation, it extends into the eternal ages. Um, after many gifts and callings are completed or put away, after intercessory burdens are, 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 are fulfilled, prayers have been answered, after all the labors of, of getting the, the gospel preached, you know, healing the sick, when all of those things are completed, this reality remains forever and ever and ever. And it being such a, a preeminent, such a, such a, a, a priority from God's perspective, it's kind of an unusual thing that, and I'd say even more so than eschatology, 
Um, the study of the end times. Understanding of this subject has been relegated kind of a back burner or kind of like a to the side, a side dish importance in the church. You know, we have language that floats around. People are, we're accustomed to some of these passages. We're accustomed to this passage. You know, we use the language um, and, and it's present, you know, pretty well within the church. But the understanding and the substance of this reality is actual, actually scarce. Um, deep understanding of something that's such a, a priority and such a big deal to, in the Bible and to the Lord himself, we're finding that, okay, we need to step into an experience of this. We need understanding to be really seasoned and spread across you know, many, many portions of the church so that understanding can really come to a, a fullness and a maturity. And what we'll find, interestingly enough, the manifestation of this bride identity in a believer it is the place of optimal satisfaction and fulfillment. Uh, it's the place of unshakable stability, how it's described. Um, the deepest place of humility and obedience comes out of this identity. And the truest witness to the power and reality of the age to come. Uh, the book of Revelation calls this the morning star. And Peter references it too. He says, until the morning star rises within your hearts. Well, that morning star is pictured on her. It is her testifying to the age to come and to the, 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 the coming eternal ages. And being in this place where she has been created to be something. And she's stepping into that, into that identity, into that reality. So we really should expect and anticipate um, a grand repentance in the church in order to embrace this reality or this identity. And why I say that is it requires a departure, unlike any other paradigm that we're given, it requires a departure from the mixture of the old new paradigms, you know, that are so prevalent right now in the, in the body of Christ. And it also requires an ongoing setting aside of like a self-reliant or self-focused paradigms within ministry and prayer. And, um, and I, realize, I realize I'm also, I'm declaring a lot of things. Um, a lot of these things I can support. We're not here doing an exhaustive study. So it's more of a vision cast and a challenge. Um, you know, we could break this into multiple sessions and I could give a lot of supporting uh, uh, scripture and understanding and passages to get into it. But like I said, I'm more just wanting to cast a vision, um, put this up into the place that I believe it properly belongs and uh, let it have a little work in the body in our hearts from there. So. That's Revelation twenty two seventeen. I started with that passage because it's a passage that everybody's familiar with and we all love and calling us into some deeper um, reflection and meditation and understanding from that passage. Now, um, again, the exaltation or the high place of this bridal identity in the word of God. Now I want to take this passage here from Song of Songs. It's chapter six, verse eight through 10. And begin to use that to explore the uniqueness of this identity. And it's kind of, you know, this, this is a, a you know, a, it, it took me a while to meditate on this passage for me to come to the understanding that I'm sharing to you. 
But I think when I saw it, it was like, well, that's amazing. And that totally makes sense. And so I'll read the passage and then just kind of unpack the understanding that came out of there. So in the middle of the Song of Songs, it says there's 60 queens and 80 concubines and young virgins without number. But my dove, my perfect one, is unique. She is her mother's only daughter. She is the pure child of the one who gave birth to her. The young women, the young virgins, saw her and called her blessed. The queens and the concubines also. And they praised her, saying, Who is this that shines like the dawn, as beautiful as the full moon, as pure as the sun, as awesome as an army with banners? So the understanding behind this passage, it really comes, it, it declares that the understanding behind this passage is one of the most exalted themes of the new covenant reality that the sacrifice of the Messiah is purchased, it's purchased for us a place in his kingdom that is absolutely beyond anything we could ask or imagine. And so we, we, have, these, we have those four categories here. First, we have the, the, young, the young virgins, the young maidens. Okay. Then next, we have the concubines. Then we have the queens. And then we have her, the unique one, the exalted one. The one that all the others say she has been blessed and favored by God and the glory of the Lord has appeared upon her. The victorious victory. She's as awesome as, a, as an army returning victorious. She's been adorned with, with glory and beauty unlike anyone else. And so one of the, the ways that I understand this passage and how it speaks to the uniqueness of the bride is not by you know, um, um, assigning value class to different people, but it's how people are identifying in their relationship with the Lord. In other words, the limitation that we're about to talk through, it doesn't come from God putting it on them. It comes from what they understand their place and their identity is in him. And so what, what we see here is there's young virgins, there's, there's young maidens, you know, without number. Those are believers who will live in a primary experience of just having been made pure or forgiven from their sins. So they walk about having been cleansed of sin, receiving forgiveness, and relating to the Lord in, in that place, from that foundational place. And we come to that next, the concubines. Those are ones who will come to understand that they live to what? Serve and please the king. But what we find, there's an inner sense of value that's still lacking. Their place of honor and worth has not been deeply touched by a revelation of who they are in the Messiah. They walk around with a, a little bit of like kind of an orphan spirit or, or a sense of lack, okay? And again, these, this isn't because the Lord's keeping them down. It's because their understanding of who they are in him hasn't come to the fullness of what he's offered. And then next, this next, others, the queens, individuals who will come to like a noble understanding of authority and partnership with the king. You know, they'll, they'll have a standing in his courts and they'll operate in his authority. They'll understand that they are valuable 
And I'd say if, if I could make an honest assessment, I think this would probably be the goal of the majority of like the Pentecostal, charismatic, spirit-filled, praying church to stand in a place where they're operating in kingdom authority and partnering with him in his kingdom. And the amazing part is there's something beyond that. And unless we connect with this bridal understanding, that just won't even float on the radar. And what's beyond that? The unique one, the perfect one, the only pure one that's been born of the spirit, the unadulterated, the undiluted, the uncorrupted revelation of what it is to have been born from the spirit and into a new creation. It is the bride. It's a rare and unique, she's rare and unique. She ascends to the place that he purchased, and that is the place of union and overshadowing, her standing and her existence in union with him and the overshadowing of his glory coming upon her life and connecting with the fact that this was the eternal, this was Yahweh's dream for the Messiah and his people. For his son to have a group of people who would identify in this place and be given to him as that special gift and him to her. This is the place where believers abide in him and he in them, in reality, in manifestation, in actual, actuality. It's a place of his beautification and glorification. Like Romans says, those whom he foreknew, he justified. Those whom he justified, he sanctified. Those whom he sanctified, he glorified. This is the culmination of that statement from the Apostle Paul. This is the place where it's not just being justified from your sins. It's not just having been set apart and set made special, but is now the glory of the age to come, of the eternal ages, shining and coming and manifesting on his people, on his bride. And so... Coming now, what is, what is a, a tangible way, what is an actual way that we can begin to, to engage and step into this? What, what is a paradigm? What's a, you know, I guess what I could say, something that distinguishes her from where she used to be before she was the bride. And it's right there in the beginning. It's the name of the Lord perfumed and poured forth. And so I, I put three different translations here of this one verse, Song of Songs 1-3. Um, I'm going to read them. And then we're, we're going to give a little explanation here about what this reality does to a believer when they begin to experience him in that way. So here we have one translation. The fragrance of your perfume is soothing, captivating. Your name is perfume poured out. No wonder young women adore you. And I love this one because it connects the pouring out of his perfumed name with adoration. It changes and shifts the focus of that heart to a primary place of adoring him, of worshiping him and adoring him. And it's it's adoring him because something that he has given her. In other words, it's, it's the Holy Spirit 
making that adoration into something powerful. Just like in, in the tabernacle or the temple service, they would offer the prayers. They would offer prayers with incense. They would take that sweet, savory mixture that had to be added to the prayers of the saints. And when it was added, that, that fragrance that could only be described, it's heaven's fragrance, heaven's reality coming into that adoration and prayer and causing it to become beautiful in a way that only heaven can do it. Only the Holy Spirit can do it. Only the name of Jesus can do it. So it's this reality where we're coming forward and we're offering um, service and offering worship to him and adoration and doing it from the correct um, perspective, the correct understanding allows him to add that thing that only he can add and it becomes powerful, it becomes beautiful, it becomes um, transportative, it changes us, okay? So here's this next one. How fragrant your cologne. Your name is, is like it's spreading fragrance. No wonder all the young women love you. And so here again in the next one, your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, the virgins, the, the pure ones, love you. And so what we, what we see here, the bride has heard the good news of this special place that Jesus, that he has for her in his heart. And this truth becomes uh, like a leaven, like that, that parable, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven put into three measures of flour, and then it, it leavens the whole lump. This one change in paradigm, this one introduction of, of her coming to understand and appreciate this identity that she has with him, the little introduction, it begins to spread and, if you will, infect and influence all of the different areas and, and the way that she views ministry, um, uh, her life, her worth, her value, how, how she views prayer, how she views just life, everyday life. It's, it changes her priorities. It changes her paradigms. It changes her values. She begins also, it also gives her the effort. It, it gives her the ability, rather, to begin to see how much of her former efforts were still self-motivated. She discovers the secret. It's experiencing his perfumed name poured into her heart that causes her to dwell in him. You know, all of, all of our efforts to dwell in him, and she discovers the secret that's it's, it's actually mentioned in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, let us be diligent or let us make every effort to enter into his rest. And so she's, she's, she's had that first part where she's, she's tried to dwell in him. She's done the prayer meeting. She's done worship. She's done devotional. She's done Bible study. And here she ends up finding the secret that she comes to this faith in this place of standing, this identity before him. And he gives her what's needed for her to then dwell in him and him in her through the Holy Spirit. It's how the Holy Spirit begins to instruct her how to enter into that rest, that Hebrews 4 rest, that greater Sabbath rest. So she, she initiates action from now on. She initiates action by adoring him and putting faith in the truth that he will be found as a fountain of life within her 
that fills and then flows forth. And this is how she learns to ask in his name. You know, I loved if you were on the, uh, the other day with Jonathan, when he talked about that check that gets written, that, that check that's always written, yes, that, that, that dwelling in his name so that whatever we ask, he says yes. This is the reality that she begins to discover. She begins to discover that as he pours his name, his, his fragrant, perfumed name into her heart, she is then able to dwell in him. And then her desires, her, her, her longings, things are changed to match up with what is in him because his nature is now manifesting in her and bringing her to a greater place of unity with him, a greater place of union in him. And so this is how the Holy Spirit begins to instruct us of how we can ask in his name, that every promise in him is yes and amen. And so I wanted to wrap up um, this section with a passage. It's a passage from Isaiah 58, which is the greater Sabbath passage in my mind. And I think it, it really reflects the transition. Again, from the beginning, we are to anticipate a grand repentance, a grand turning um, in the body of Christ. And necessary to turn away from some things and turn towards this identity, the realities that it talks about to embrace it. And this, this, this reality from Isaiah 58, this greater Sabbath rest passage. And here we see it. It says the Lord will. She comes to a place where she, the, the, it is like, uh, like Paul said again, the Lord is continually at work within you both to desire and to do that which would be well-pleasing in the Father's sight. She discovers this Sabbath rest, having ceased from her own efforts, her own works, and entered into the works of God. That greater Sabbath rest that is still waiting for believers, while today is still today, this is the reality that she is being brought into and she's discovering. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. You will be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters never run dry.